Hey, good morning, church, and uh, good morning for those that are watching us online. We're glad to see you today. Uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Job, and so if you'll turn to the book of Job, the 32nd chapter, Job 32, uh, we're in a series that is called Suffering, Sovereignty, and Faith. And we're getting ready to get to a, a, a sort of a transition point, so I want to, in a real brief moment, catch you up with what happened in the first 31 chapters. You got that? Can we do it? Can we make it quick? Here we go. All right. God was having an executive staff meeting. Satan showed up. Satan showed up. He says, what have you been doing? Satan says, I've been going to and fro. Bottom line, I'm looking for people that I can uh, dissuade them from following you and to, in essence, to spread lies about who you are and your character. And he said, well, if you looked at my man Job, and he said, there's no way I can even touch Job because you've built such a hedge of protection around him. I mean, you've blessed him with incredible possessions, got a beautiful wife, got 10 great kids, perfect health. He said, why would he ever curse you? He said, um, however, if you would let me uh, do some things to him, I, I bet he'll turn around and curse you. He said, okay, I'll give you the okay. You just can't touch his body. And so in a short while, all on one day, Job lost all his possessions. His 10 children were killed in a tragic accident and, uh, and he was penniless. And uh, when all of this happened, he looked to the Lord and he says, you know, I was naked when I came in from the womb and I'll be naked when I, when I travel back to home to heaven. And he just said, blessed be the name of the Lord. And never did he curse God with his lips. And so later on, Satan comes back around, same kind of conversation. And God says, what about my servant Job? He held fast to his integrity. And Satan said, skin for skin. If you touch his skin, if you touch his health, he'll curse you to your face. He says, okay, I'll give you the freedom to do that. He says, but you cannot take his life. And so he went and he touched his skin and he broke out with incredible boils and sores and filled with pus. And I mean, it was just, it's grotesque as to what all happened. And he's sitting there scraping all the sores and he ends up sitting in the city dump on an ash heap and in horrible health, emaciated, having lost all of his kids, all of his possessions. But yet, he never cursed the Lord. And it says he maintained and held fast to his integrity. And so he had three so-called friends that came by. Uh, and as these three friends came, they sat there and they came to comfort him. And for seven days, they sat in silence because they wanted to wait for Job to speak. And as soon as Job spoke, he kind of did a woe is me chapter. And then for the next 25 chapters, they piled on to him. It went from comfort to confrontation. And these guys were convinced that Job had done some heinous sin in his life. And because he'd done that heinous sin, that is why God was bringing all of this punishment down to him. And if he would just recognize that sin, confess to God, he would be uh, hopefully receive the mercy of God and be forgiven and be restored and everything would, everything would be fine. But Job said, there isn't any heinous sin. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but there's nothing that I've done that's so out of the ordinary to where I should be inflicted with this much suffering. And so for back and forth, back and forth, eight different uh, uh, conversations they had. And, uh, and then finally got to the point where you get to chapter 32 and it says the friends were quiet. Whew. Well, there's a praise the Lord right there. <laughs> and so the friends were quiet because they were frustrated because Job would never admit that what he'd done was wrong. And then all of a sudden we're introduced to a bystander. It's a young guy. 
His name is Elihu. And in chapter 32, in verse two, it says, then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. And so Elihu, this bystander, he's just listening to all this go back and forth. And finally, when all the old guys were quiet, he steps up. He is the original angry young man. And he tells you, I'm younger than all these other people, but I am angry. He said, I'm angry at you, Job. Angry that you won't admit that, that you sin. And he says, and I'm angry over here at these three old friends because you were not able to answer all of Job's uh, arguments on there. And so we're going to follow Elihu and his intentions are good and he starts out good. He deferred to the older people. He says, I'm younger, you're older, I will defer to you. You get it all out of your system, you done? Now let me speak. And then once they'd said everything they had said, he was ready to go. And he had been standing there listening to this so much that he was ready to pop. He's, I'm just so ready to say something. Verse 18, he says, for I'm full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. He said, I'm telling you what, I gotta say something, if for no other reason, just to give me some relief. Have you ever been that way? <laughs> it's kinda like watching people on sports talk radio, right? You know, you're just angry, you wanna jump in and say something. And, and so all of a sudden, he's just ready to, ready to pop. He says, okay, I'm getting ready to say something. I'm gonna lay it out. And he says, I'm full of words. And if I could put it this way, he was full of words and he was full of himself. He starts out a little humble, picks up on arrogance as we go throughout the way. His talk covers six chapters. Verses 30, uh, 32 all the way through chapter 37. Just to put this in perspective, the length of the chapters in the biblical text is longer than 12 other Old Testament books and 17 of the 27 New Testament books and letters. You believe that? So Elijah has got a lot of airtime and he's got a lot of bluster, but he does have some valuable truths which will be necessary for the preparation of Job so that Job is ready to hear from the Lord. Now, Elihu is like a bridge between the world of these three friends that have been arguing and, and making all these uh, accusations at Job, the bridge over here to the word of God. So from the world of his friends to the word of God, in order to get there, you have this bridge, and that is Elihu. And what Elihu does is he is going to present some truths out of all the bluster that he has. He has some truths that will help us to be prepared to hear from the Lord. And so where this is so valuable, it's valuable for Job, but it's valuable for us because every one of us goes through times of suffering and testing and tribulation. And we're wanting to hear from the Lord and sometimes it feels like that God is silent. That what these truths are, or these are truths that will give us hopefully what we need to be able to be clearly listening to when God speaks to us, okay? So that's what we're taking a look at on here. So Elihu, 
He begins talking. And in chapter 33, he talks about how his heart is upright. He says, I'm a man created by God just as you are, Job. And then from verses 8 through 11, he summarizes Job. Hey, Job. Uh, Everybody says they think you've sinned, and uh, you say, no, I haven't. I think God has unfairly uh, caused me to suffer, and I'd like to know why. I think I've I've covered all that. And then in verse 12, he says, but Job, you're wrong. And then he begins to go in to his talk. Now, the good thing about this one is that when you read about Elihu, the tone begins to get different. Uh, versus uh, the 26 chapters with the three friends was kind of like the presidential debate, okay? (laughs) Had just a lot of hollering at each other, okay? And now all of a sudden, Elihu uh, steps in and he's going to lower the tone. He's gonna lower the tone. And, uh, And he presents some truths. And here's the first truth. Greatest test in suffering is not the pain, but not knowing why. Write this down. The greatest test in suffering is not the pain, but not knowing why. Chapter 33, verse 13, he says to Job, he says, why do you contend against God saying he will answer none of man's words? Why do you say that God's not going to answer any of man's words? Well, when you begin to think about it, if God were to answer all your questions, we would not be adequately tested. Now, what if God had said to Job, hey, Job, uh, when all this stuff's getting ready to hit you, let me just share with this with you. Listen, Satan and I got together and uh, I told him it was okay for him to do this. He's going to put these things against you, but hey, no, don't fear because later on you're gonna be restored and everything's gonna be coming back to you, okay? You know, wouldn't it be nice if God laid out all the whys, the what's, and the how's of every suffering situation that came into our lives? That as soon as some type of suffering came, that God would come and he'd either send us an email, a text, or just give us a call and say, hey, hey, this suffering is right here on the edge. Let me explain it to you right now. I'm going to lay all the details. Well, that's not the purpose of it. And you see, Job's greatest test was really not the pain and the suffering as bad as that was but it was that he didn't know why it happened. And that's what was frustrating him. And our greatest test may be that we must trust God's goodness even though we don't understand why our lives are going in a certain way. It's the unknown of the why is part of God's process. And that in every suffering as God is trying to teach us, there's that unknown of the why And that's a part of his process. Elizabeth Elliot wrote this short essay and it was called, Nevertheless, We Must Run Aground. And she takes the story of the Apostle Paul when he was arrested and was being sent to Rome by boat for trial. And this is what she writes. The story of Paul's voyage as a prisoner across the Adriatic Sea tells how an angel stood beside him and told him not to be afraid even in spite of winds of hurricane force. For God would spare his life and the lives of all with him on board the ship. Paul cheered his guards and his fellow passengers with that word, but then he added in Acts 27, 26, nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. It would seem that the God who promises to spare all hands might have done the job right, save the ship as well. 
and spared them the embarrassment of having to make it to land on the flotsam and jetsam that was left. The fact is, he did not. Nor does he always spare us. Heaven is not here. It's there. And if we were given all we wanted here, our hearts would settle for this world rather than the next. God is forever luring us up and away from this one, wooing us to himself and his still invisible kingdom where we will certainly find what we so keenly long for. Running aground then is not the end of the world. But it helps to lead us not into temptation, the temptation complacently to settle for visible things. We might not always understand the why. And part of God's plan might be for us to run aground, but we can trust his goodness and know that this earthly home is temporary and we long for our heavenly home. Here's the second truth. Second truth is that God speaks to us through revelation and pain. God speaks to us through revelation and pain. In verses 14 through 18, he he comes back to Job and he says, uh, you're contending that God doesn't answer man. God does. God speaks to man. And he says, through visions and dreams and warnings. Now, if we took that today, we would say he speaks to us through God's word, through the Holy Spirit, through the counsel of others, through circumstances. Yes, God speaks to us. But then he also said, God speaks to us in our pain. In verses 19 through 22, he says, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite to choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death He says, even in pain, God is going to speak to you. C.S. Lewis made that famous statement where he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God shouts to us in our pains. So to prepare to hear from the Lord, we need to know that God does speak through your pain. So as you're going through suffering, do not feel that that means that God's never going to speak to you. Oh no, he is going to speak to you through your pain. Well then, when this suffering comes, what is part of the purpose of that? That's the third truth, and that is this. Suffering is preventive and affirmative. Suffering is preventive and affirmative. Now, understand that word preventive. It's not preventable. It is preventive. The word preventive is to keep something undesirable from occurring. To keep something undesirable from occurring. Uh, preventive maintenance. We understand that. You, put, you take uh, measures of preventive maintenance on your air conditioning system so in the like, to try to keep the likelihood of it failing in the future. You do preventive maintenance on your automobile. You keep it up and running good so that you will not have the likelihood of a failure within your car. And it says suffering is the same way. It is preventive and it is affirmative. In verses 28 through 30, he talks about how a man has sinned. He goes to God, he asks for forgiveness. God forgives him, restores him. And then verse 28, he has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life 
shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Now, why is all this suffering taking place? Preventive. He says suffering is, the purpose in suffering is preventive because what it does, it allows his children to suffer to bring them back in their heading in a wrong direction. He talked about that you were heading towards the pit, but because the suffering, it pulled you away from the pit. It is that your life was heading in a direction that if it continued going in that direction, it would result in the pit, which means the grave and eternal death and so God allowed suffering to come into your life to allow you to make that turn, preventive, to keep you from making bigger mistakes. But then it says it's affirmative because it says to show you the light, the light of life. And that God allows suffering to come into our life because he doesn't just keep you off the wrong path, he wants to put you on the right path. And so it'll help you head towards that right path. Now you see, for 26 chapters, Job's friends have argued that all suffering is a result of sin and that they have connected it. Anytime you suffer, you're gonna get sin. You're, anytime you sin, you're going to suffer. Now, there is truth that there will be when we sin, there are consequences. But every time that we experience suffering, it does not mean that there has been some type of sin. And so Elihu is not totally buying into that argument. And this is what differentiates him from those other three. Because he's saying, I believe that God is doing a work in Job through this time of suffering. And so Jesus also kind of tried to go against this link of putting specific suffering with specific sins. And in John chapter nine, uh, there's a passage that talks about as he and his disciples are walking along and they see this man who's blind. Look what he says in John 9, one through three. He says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? So all of a sudden they're saying, hey, he's suffering, it's gotta be because of sin. What'd Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There was a purpose for this, as that God may be glorified. And so what happened? Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Incredible miracle. And if you like to read a little humor, uh, John chapter nine is one of the great passages of all. Because once this man comes back and he says, I can see again, the authorities brought him in, and they're trying to figure out how this happened. They didn't want to give Jesus credit for it. And they went so far to say that you're not who you say you are. You never were blind. They had to bring his mom and dad in to confirm his identity and to confirm that he had been blind. And when they kept questioning, he finally says that famous statement. Hey, folks, listen, I don't really know who he was or all that happened. I don't know how it happened. All I know is this. Once I was blind, but now I see. And after he'd finished that, Jesus met him, introduced him, told him who he was, and he goes off praising Jesus. You see, God took that suffering and he used it for a purpose. In Genesis 30, excuse me, in chapter 34 of the book of Job, uh, he talks about God's justice and indicts Job, more blustering. Chapter 35, a little bit more blustering. And then you get to this verse 12 in chapter 35. Okay, you're just reading through, reading through, reading through, and all of a sudden, this little verse jumps out at you. 
Look what he says. There they cry out, but God does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Look closely at that. They cry out. God, I'm crying out to you, but God doesn't hear. And he doesn't because of the pride of evil men. Now this, this little seed that's been planted, we're going to come back next week when God talks to, to Job. And God's gonna to disclose to Job that there are some elements of pride that he needs to deal with. And so Elihu sort of penetrated that with this one statement there. So he finishes up 35, he gets ready to go into to chapter 36, and you come to the fourth truth, and that is this. Suffering forms a deeper quality of existence. Suffering forms a deeper quality of existence. I'm talking about our individual lives. Through suffering, there is a deeper quality. In verse 15 of chapter 36, it says, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Closely look at that. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. So what that means is, is that God, it was a person that was afflicted and God used that affliction to teach them and to deliver them. And so it was by delivering you from that affliction is how you got taught. And then it says he opens their ear by adversity. He got their attention. He shared some things with them. And it was only through adversity that he was able to understand that. And it is through the suffering of God's servant that there can be healing and gaining a deeper understanding of who God is. And when we go through adversity, God gets our attention, teaches us more about himself. Thus, we have this deeper quality of existence. You know, if you're ever, when, if you're ever with Rick and Sherry Burgess, and, and sometimes when they talk and they talk about suffering as, as they've walked through some difficult times, it'd be interesting because they said when they travel and they'll be in a church service and hear a young guy preach, uh, Sherry will often make the comment to Rick. She'll lean over to him and he said, you know, he'll really be good once he suffers. He'll really be good once he suffers. I said, what does that mean? That means, oh man, he's, he, he's good at his level right here. But whenever you suffer, God takes you into a deeper level. And it's a deeper existence and an understanding of God that can only be gained by suffering. And if our most honest moments, if we know, we know of people who have been through unbelievable suffering, and there is such a richness in their walk with God that is so much deeper than mine. I mean, I, I just look at people like this and, and oftentimes just say, boy, I want to have that. But then there's that other part of me that says, but Danny, do you want to go through what they went through to get that? The answer should be yes. <laughs> but sometimes we go, wow, I don't know. But I should desire that, to say, God, whatever it is to bring me into that deeper existence with you. And that's what suffering does. And so it opens up the ears, helps us to be able to learn more about him, all right? Then he talks, as he's getting ready to close uh, in chapter 37, he talks about the fifth truth, and that is that storms come for discipline and refreshment. Storms come, the storms of suffering, they come, and they come for discipline and refreshment. Chapter 37, verse 11, 
He says, God loads the thick cloud with moisture and the clouds scatter his lightning and they turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them. This is God over all of nature and on the face of the habitable world. And then verse 13, and whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Whoa, just this small verse in here. He says, God controls all this weather, using this as an illustration. And he says, he either does it for correction, punishment of people have done wrong, or for his land, for the nourishment of the land, or for love, to supply the needs of his people. He says, so when you see suffering, you see the storm clouds come through. Sometimes it is to punish the wicked. Sometimes it's for the nourishment of the land. And sometimes it is for love and grace to supply the needs of his people. All of these are expressions of his faithful and steadfast love. Storms come for discipline and refreshment. And number six, He's getting ready to land his plane after six chapters of talking. And the sixth truth is this. In the midst of suffering, focus on the majesty and might of God. In the midst of suffering, focus on the majesty and might of God. Now, here's where Elihu comes through. is because he is putting all of the focus right here on God. And we've taken it off of Job and now all of a sudden he's shifting and he is going to God. He is telling him in 36 and 37 that God is intending to teach Job something through this affliction. And he says, rather than correcting the teacher, you need to embrace the teacher. And you need to remember to magnify God and his works and to see him as the creator of all things. And he comes in verse 26 of where he says, behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is, is immeasurable. We cannot comprehend God. And, and, and he's saying that, you know, there are going to be questions in life and we're not going to get answers to all of those questions. So that's why we constantly go to God for insight. And, and there are things we don't understand. We can't get it on our own. We need to constantly go to him and just see the might and the majesty of God. And then he hits chapter 37, and this is the whole thing. He just talks about God. And he begins to talk about the majesty and the might of the transcendent, magnificent God. And so what I want to do is I want to read that, but I want to read it from, uh, from the message. And, uh, I, and I encourage you, she read through the book of Job. And this is a little homework assignment. Next week, we're going to look at what God said, chapters 38, 39, 40, 41. All right, we're gonna go through that. Read through it this week, but also read through it in the message or the uh, living translation, new living translation, living Bible. One of those paraphrases, because they take it into our language. So this is him, this is Elihu. And he's talking to Job. He says, it is God's breath that forms the ice. It's God's breath that turns lakes and rivers solid. And yes, it's God who fills clouds with rainwater and he hurls lightning from them every which way. He puts them through their paces first, this way, then that. He commands them to do what he says all over the world. And whether for discipline or grace or extravagant love, he makes sure they make their mark. Job, are you listening? Have you noticed all this? Stop in your tracks. Take, God, take in God's miracle wonders. 
Do you have any idea how God does it all? How he makes bright lightning from dark storms, how he piles up the cumulus clouds, all these miracle wonders of a perfect mind? Why, you don't even know how to keep cool on a sweltering hot day, so how could you even dream of making a dent in that hot tin roof sky? If you're so smart, give us a lesson in how to address God. We're in the dark, we can't figure it out. Do you think I'm dumb enough to challenge God? Wouldn't that just be asking for trouble? No one in his right mind stares straight at the sun on a clear and cloudless day. And his gold comes from the northern mountains, so a terrible beauty streams from God. Mighty God, far beyond our reach, unsurpassable in power and justice. It's unthinkable that he'd treat anyone unfairly. So bow to him in deep reverence, one and all. If you're wise, you'll most certainly worship him. And that's how he closes out. And what he did was he speaks of this reverential awe and worshipful wonder that all people should have for their omnipotent creator. And what he's telling Job is the same thing he's telling us is we have a big God who knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. He's big enough to intervene. He's big enough to be trusted. He's big enough to be held in awe and feared. And he's big enough to erase your worries and to replace them with peace. He is the almighty creator omnipotent, omniscient God. And so Elihu has now pointed us up to God and he has got Job prepared to hear a word from the Lord, okay? Now, very last truth is this. Transform the question from why to for what purpose. Write this down because this is, out of all the study of Job, this may be the sentence that you need to remember as you go through difficult times. Transform the question from why to for what purpose. You see, the answer comes not from looking back, but in looking up. We must look forward for the divine purpose and not hunt around for causes in the past. Elihu has moved us from a backward-looking, uh, retributive understanding of suffering to a forward-looking, redemptive one with a pain that heals. And so he's saying, I'm gonna transform the question. You don't need to be asking why. You need to be asking, okay, Lord, for what purpose? The answer is not in the sins of the past, but in the manifestation of the works of God in the future. And so as they have walked all through this, Elihu is bottom line telling Job, listen, I don't think it's so much whatever's happened in the past. I think it's what God is wanting to teach you right now. And so as you have struggled with the why question, and it's only natural that anytime something happens to us, we start with the why question. And we say, why is this, Lord? But then there has to come a time where we need to transform that question and then look to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, for what purpose? For what purpose? What is the purpose that you have for this suffering? What purpose do you have? Simone Will made this statement. She said, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. I love that. You see, in the, Christian, in the Christian faith, the way we look at suffering, we're not looking for a super 
natural remedy, but a supernatural use to where we go through times of suffering and tribulation and adversity, God has a purpose in it. So rather than beating up ourselves and God constantly asking, why am I going through this? Transform the question and ask, for what purpose? What are you wanting to show me, to teach me, and to warn me? The very last words that Elihu said in verse 24, therefore, men fear God. The fear of the Lord is what we have come to. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord will prepare you to hear the Lord speak to you in the midst of your suffering. But here's the good news. As you find yourself in the eye of the storm, suffering and questioning, God is in control. That's his sovereignty. Surrounding you by his love to strengthen your faith and to hold on to you even in the midst of that storm. And as he's doing this, he is also going to be showing you what is the purpose. How can I learn more about you? What is it you're teaching me? Where are you taking and guiding me? Okay? Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, uh, they... Uh, that we have so many questions when things come up and we find ourselves scratching our heads trying to, trying to get answers to them. And I thank you for your word that uh, it always drives us back to you. And that, uh, Lord, I pray for each one of us that as we think about this study of Job and we think about where we are in our life, that we will be drawn to the greatness of who you are. And that as we struggle in our own questions, that we will make that shift to where you say, so for what purpose, Lord? And let me keep my eyes on you, knowing that you are the one that controls everything. Nothing happens to me that has not first been sifted by you and has gone through your hands. And so with that, with that truth in mind, it means, Lord, I need to ask you, so for what purpose for this? May you bring a peace to each of our hearts as we make that shift and may we look to the God, a God of compassion and a God of love. For it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.